So one of the, uh, Lottie and I, one of our favorite things to do is to occasionally watch home renovation shows. Uh, this is appropriate right now since we are about to uh, purchase and sort of renovate a home in a few weeks. And so we've been watching some, some uh, um, uh, TV shows where they do some home renovations. And I'm not a huge fan. Um, I, I, I don't really understand the whole celebrity appeal of, of some of these people, especially the, the twin brothers. And then there's the twin sisters also. And then other twins that just, I don't know why there's so many twins involved in home renovation TV shows. But um, one of the, the things, I mean, we, we pick up a lot of kind of insightful knowledge just by watching these. But uh, the big purpose, the, the big climax of these home renovation TV shows is a big reveal, where at the, towards the very conclusion of the show, we see this uh, old, dull, small, unsuspecting, sometimes a, a really nasty home completely transfigured. It's glowing. It's beautiful. The homeowners are crying, and all, kind, all of this is because of this transformation that takes place. And there's a big reveal, and everything builds towards this moment in the show. So the, we are in the season after Epiphany. Today is actually the last day of this season after Epiphany. And there's this theme of the big reveal throughout this season. Uh, some people would say that the season after Epiphany isn't really, it's just ordinary time. But there's this commonality with several different feast days, starting with Epiphany itself, where the three uh, Gentile magi, or, actually, or we don't know how many magi there are, uh, the, the magi come and visit Jesus. And the glory of, of God is unveiled in the face of Jesus to the Gentiles. Then there's the baptism of Jesus where the glory of God is unveiled through this moment of being baptized in the River Jordan. And then January 18th is the confession of Peter. When Peter, it's commemorated that Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And, and Jesus says to him, blessed are you, son of Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. There is a revealing that takes place here in Epiphany. Then there's the holiday, the commemoration, January 25th, the conversion of Paul, where Paul sees a blinding, beaming light and has an encounter with Jesus that changes the course of his life. And then February 2nd is often called Candlemas. Uh, you might not have known about this, but it's the celebration, the commemoration of Mary being presented in the temple 40 days postpartum, which was the custom in the, uh, second, in, in the Old Testament, in, uh, in the Second Temple era. Mary, after 40 days after giving birth to Jesus, comes to the temple uh, to be purified and to uh, uh, give thanks to God for her survival, just like we give thanks to God for the survival of mothers and, and uh, the birth of their children. Um, and what happens here is, is interesting. This old man named Simeon takes Jesus in his arms, and he says, "'Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace.'" According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared for in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. There's a big reveal in this moment as well. And then we get to today, we recommemorate the Mount of Transfiguration, in which there is a big reveal. We see 
in today's gospel narrative, the glory of God is found in the face of Jesus on the Mount Transfiguration. The glory of God is found in the face of Jesus. And so we're going to spend some time uh, unpacking this big reveal in Matthew 17. Please join me in, in, uh, in, your, in your Bibles. Matthew 17. So to start off this narrative, this historic account, we see in Matthew 17, after six days, Jesus with, took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. This is setting the scene. So um, six days previously, Jesus was teaching his disciples that he was going to die and be raised from the dead. He was teaching his disciples that they needed to take up their cross and follow him. And then the last thing we hear recorded that he tells his disciples is, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So this is on the minds of the disciples. They're anticipating. When is Jesus going to come in glory for his kingdom? And then after six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, three of his disciples, to a high mountain. Now, for those who read the Old Testament and are familiar with it, there's, uh, uh, you know, when we think of high mountain in scriptures, we might think of, well, high mountains are where God meets with his people, whether it's Mount Sinai, Mount Carmel, or Mount Zion, where the temple was. In Mount Sinai, we hear uh, today's text of Exodus that the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. The cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. This is the, the, uh, in the Exodus when um, the Lord is giving uh, the Ten Commandments and statutes and, and uh, rules for uh, the people of Israel to abide by, the law. And we hear that the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. God's glory, a radiant cloud, a consuming fire, it's hard to even grasp the, the, the biblical authors are trying to grasp at the language to describe God's manifest glory on the mountain. But God was meeting his people through Moses on Mount Sinai. And God does something similar uh, many, many years later when Israel had become wayward and started following this false uh, deity named Baal or Baal. Um, the people of Israel were following after Baal, and the prophet Elijah called them to obedience, to return to the Lord. And there's a big showdown on Mount Carmel, where the prophets of Baal cobble together an altar and put a sacrifice on it, and then they're calling out to Baal to make himself shown on this altar. They're beating themselves, cutting themselves, and nothing happens. And Elijah is just sitting by saying, well, maybe he's busy. Maybe he can't hear you. He might be in the bathroom and um, mocking them while the God doesn't show up. And so Elijah does the same, though. He builds an altar, he puts sacrifices on it, and then he douses it with water and trusting in the Lord. And then we hear this in 1 Kings 18.38, Fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. God's glory became manifested on Mount Carmel. 
And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. They fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This should be in the back of our minds when we see that Jesus is taking three of his disciples to a high mountain. We might be thinking in our minds, something's about to go down. And we wouldn't be wrong. Because we see in verse 2 that Jesus was transfigured before them. That's literally the word metamorphosized. Jesus underwent a metamorphosis in front of them. It's akin to a a little kind of fat uh, caterpillar uh, eating uh, uh, leaves and, and kind of just going about its business. And then a few weeks later becomes this incredibly beautiful, elegant butterfly. That is a metamorphosis. It's akin to that. But we see that Jesus, he's still Jesus, on this mountain, his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. Mark's gospel talks about Jesus becoming so white, it's hard to even describe it, like bleach, like the whitest white you could see. Jesus is metamorphosized, and there's a piercing brightness coming from him, from his face, from his clothes. There's a glare. Think about um, while you're driving, if you're like me, you have an astigmatism and you have a tough time driving at night without glasses because as you're driving down the highway, there's all these lights, bright lights, and it's just hard to see. Or if you're driving to work on the highway and the sun is coming up and it's right in your face, it becomes dangerous at that point. It's like that, except even more intense with Jesus in his transfiguration. And there's a weightiness to the piercing brightness of Jesus's face. Uh, uh, almost uh, uh, there's a feeling of fear. So um, we see, you, you can see the weightiness uh, in the natural world when you, when, when you explore nature. So the, the word weighty, actually, so the word glory in the Old Testament actually means weight. Kavod means weightiness, a heaviness. And so when you see a high mountain and it makes you a little bit afraid because you realize how small you are, that's an example of of understanding and comprehending the weightiness of this mountain. Uh, An example uh, for me is when Lottie and I were on our honeymoon uh, to Niagara Falls towards the very end of our honeymoon. Uh, We we went and visited Niagara Falls. We went to the top of this waterfall, parked. We weren't uh, there yet. We had some distance to walk. And as we're walking, I can feel a rumbling. I can feel it in the ground. I can almost hear it in the air. There's this kind of background noise happening, and I could see from a distance the water coming, like just shooting with such force, and I could just feel it, and it terrified me. Um, We were 50 feet back, not even close to the edge, and I was trying to grab strands of grass to hold myself back and trying to grab Lottie's uh, dress or hair, I don't know what, just to, you're not allowed to get close. Um, and I was scared of this uh, wonder of the world. And there's a similar weightiness with the glory of Jesus. The piercing brightness would cause us to tremble in holy fear. Beyond, or not just with that, but we see on the mountain, behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. So at this point, if you were watching this and you, you realize you're in over your head when dead people start showing up. And the reason why Moses and Elijah, no, we just talked about, they had mountaintop experiences with the Lord. 
There is, in a sense, a new Sinai, a new Carmel, a new mountaintop experience that greatly exceeds those previously. Jesus unveils his beaming glory on this mountain. Now, how did the disciples respond to this manifestation of God's glory on the mountain? Well, ultimately, they're overwhelmed uh, by this vision of glory. But uh, before that becomes apparent, Peter responds. So uh, uh, Peter likely had in the back of his mind that they were going to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom because Jesus shared that with them recently. He was probably pretty giddy with excitement. And the disciples over and over again asked Jesus when he was coming in his kingdom. We hear in Acts 1.6, after Jesus' resurrection, right as he's about to ascend, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're longing, they're ready for him to restore uh, and bring his kingdom on earth. So Peter opens his mouth, but he, he's giddy with excitement, but he just starts talking and it, and it uh, just fills space. And it's kind of akin to, if you've seen The Office, uh, Michael um, uh, when, uh, is the uh, branch manager of Dunder Mifflin. And he speaks with his supervisor uh, one, one time where his supervisor calls him into his office and said, okay, Michael, uh, I don't quite know what you're doing. You're not the most uh, orthodox. You don't use the most orthodox methods. How are you, how are you such a successful branch? How, how are you making top sales? And Michael just starts this rant that, is nonsensical. Um, it doesn't make any sense. And off screen, he says, sometimes I just start a sentence and I don't even know what's going. I just hope I find it along the way. <laughs> I think it's akin to this when Peter just starts talking. He says, uh, he, he says, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Mark's gospel adds, he didn't know what he was saying. And I think it becomes a little apparent as we read that. Now, we also learn that he gets interrupted while he's talking. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. A few things to note about this. First off, the glory is intensified. At this point, there's an intensification of the glory. We hear the glory of God now being described as a, a, a radiant cloud akin to the cloud, the pillar of cloud and the, the consuming fire that we see in the Old Testament. This cloud comes and we hear in Luke's gospel, it envelops them. It almost swallows them up. And as this is happening, they hear a booming voice coming from the cloud. It's the voice of the Father himself. And he says, just like at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. It's almost reconfirming what they've already heard, what others have already witnessed. But then doubling down and saying, listen to him. Because Peter and the disciples weren't doing an incredible job of just being there in the moment and taking it in. It's as if God's saying, stop talking and listen. And when they hear this voice, how did the disciples respond? They fell on their faces and were terrified. Now that's a little bit more appropriate of response to the overwhelming glory of God seen in the face of Jesus. 
And in some sense, this is a posture of worship, recognizing that God is so much greater than us, feeling a holy, trembling fear and falling and covering our faces. I'm reminded of Psalm 99 today. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. Fall down at his footstool, holy is he. When we encounter the holiness of God, the glory of God, it's, it's hard not to fall down at his face in awe and fear. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah, the prophet, is is raptured up into the heavenly throne room of God. And he sees angels, seraphim, with six wings. With two they fly, with two they cover their bodies, their their feet, and then with two they veil their faces because they themselves cannot behold the glory of God. And they're singing, holy, holy, holy. So the disciples falling to their faces, covering their faces, and then in fear is in some sense a posture of worship, a more appropriate response to the glory of God made manifest than what they were doing previously. But then we see that Jesus interrupts them, taps them on the shoulder. He says, rise and have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus was there. I'm sure the disciples were relieved in one sense, because that was a terrifying experience. But this is also the, the, the glory, the, the mountaintop experience. The glory's gone. It's hidden. Where'd it go? Moses and Elijah aren't there anymore. Jesus is just as he was previously. And they start to descend the mountain in this mountaintop experience, likely with questions, lots of questions. And as they're coming down the mountain, we hear Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. It becomes apparent what's on Jesus's mind in this mountaintop transfiguration experience as they descend the mountain to the cross. You see, soon after this, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, marching towards his own death for the sins of the entire world. Remember, just previous to the uh, transfiguration, Jesus is telling his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day rise again. Jesus tells his disciples to take up their crosses and follow him, just verses before today's. And we learn in Luke chapter 9 that Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah about his departure that's going to happen in Jerusalem. In this glorious, exalted moment on the mountain, Jesus is thinking of his own crucifixion. You know, there's a sense in which Christ's glory is most manifest, not on this Mount of Transfiguration, but on the cross itself. Philippians 2, we hear that Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, death on a cross. And in this point of humility, even death, God highly exalted him. And we, in our 
uh, uh, worship of Jesus. We should boast in not in um, our own accomplishments, not in Jesus's, um, uh, well, not in anything other than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Galatians 6.14, Paul says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is the pinnacle moment of his glory on display. The glory of God is found in the face of Jesus Christ on the mountain and at the cross. And this is appropriate to remember as we leave this season after Epiphany and head towards Lent and ultimately Good Friday. So, okay, we ourselves were not there on the Mount of Transfiguration. We didn't witness the glory that the disciples witnessed in that moment. But, you know, we do have our own experiences of the glory of God coming into our life. I mean, one way is through the natural world. The, the, the world that God created can inspire awe and fear. It, um, you know, uh, the example of uh, Niagara Falls is, is one pretty good example. Another is um, sometimes, you know, my family vacations to Michigan occasionally in the summertime. And uh, where we go, there's no um, light uh, pollution. So you see the stars clearly, and it's terrifying to me. I realize how small I really am. Sometimes we might experience the glory of God through people in our lives, through what they say or do or their company. And sometimes we have supernatural experiences that defy comprehension, where God himself meets us. Most of all, we are intended to have experiences of the glory of God and the face of Jesus in worship. And a service just like this, where the word of God, the glory of God and the words of scripture lift off the pages and pierce our own hearts. Like that piercing brightness that the disciples saw. And then ultimately we encounter the glorious Lord Jesus at the Lord's table. How have you experience the glory of God in your life, nature, in people, experiences, and in worship. If nothing comes to mind, ask the Lord to show you his glory, especially when you come before him to the Lord's table today. So there's one question that's lingering is also why does Jesus show his glory here? It's only for a snippet you know, the glory, we will all experience the glory of Jesus at a later time, but why does he just show it, unveil it in this moment? For five reasons. First off, for adoration, so that we might have the right posture of worship as we approach Jesus. When we see Jesus' glory, we realize that he is God and we are not. In Isaiah 6, uh, uh, right after Isaiah has this, or as Isaiah is having this vision in the throne room of God, and he sees the glory of the Lord. He says, I am undone. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. It's a people of unclean lips. He realizes, I am not God, and I am not right with God, and I am in his presence right now. This brings us to a posture of adoration, worship, right worship. 
But this also, um, uh, the, the, one of the reasons that Jesus shows his glory is for our salvation, so that we may rightly know him and have eternal life. In 2 Corinthians 4, uh, verse 6, we hear that God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And we learn elsewhere in Scripture that to know Jesus is to have eternal life. To be in relationship with him, truly knowing him for who he is, is to have eternal life. A third reason is confirmation. Jesus can strengthen and confirm our faith through his own glory being manifest. He did so for Peter. We know because Peter wrote the letter, the second letter uh, from Peter in the Bible. And he says in, first, uh, in 2 Peter 1, verse 16, We didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he's thinking of none other than the Mount of Transfiguration, because he says, For when he received glory and honor from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. This stuck with Peter. This incredible event where he was told to shut up and, and just take it in stuck with him. He heard the voice. He saw the glory. And, and he says, and we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. This confirmed and strengthened his faith. And it can do the same with us too. A fourth reason for the transfiguration of Jesus is for our own transfiguration, our own changed lives. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Jesus is at work in our lives now transforming us to be mirrors reflecting his glory. And not fully, not yet. Jesus tells us through scripture, it's actually uh, in uh, 1 John, that uh, what we will be is not yet but we will become like him because we will see him, see Jesus as he is. So why does Jesus show us his glory? Adoration, so we'd worship him rightly. Salvation, so we can know him. Confirmation, to strengthen and confirm our faith. Transfiguration, to give us a glimpse of what he's doing to us now and will do on, the, 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 uh, on judgment day and in the new creation. And then finally, invitation. Jesus shows us his glory to invite us to lay aside our glory and follow his example of doing the same. Jesus, at this mountaintop experience, still went to Jerusalem, still went to the cross. And he invites us to do the same. To deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him. So as we leave the mountain and head to the cross in this Lenten season, let us take up our cross and follow him. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word to us uh, through this transfiguration narrative. 
We ask that you would reveal your glory in this story, in this narrative, this, bi- this biographical account, uh, more fully, and reveal your glory to us in our lives, and especially here today through the Lord's table. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.